Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week, we pick a new history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week, I'm very happy to say we have Joy Wiltenberg on the show, and we'll be discussing her book, Crime and Culture in Early Modern Germany. I'm an early modernist myself, so it's always a treat for me to talk to another early modernist. There are not enough of us. Joy, thanks for being on the show. Oh, thanks for having me. Um, Perhaps you could begin the interview with us by telling us just a little bit about yourself. Well, I'm a historian of early modern Europe, and I teach at Rowan University in Glassboro, New Jersey. Um, I got my PhD at the University of Virginia, where I was very lucky to study with Eric Middlefort, Mm -hmm. who's a very stimulating and wonderful mentor. That's great. This is actually my third book. My first was based on my dissertation, and then I did a collection of sources in translation. Why, why Germany? Well, um, that's a good question. I actually started out studying England, and then I encountered this wonderful mentor who was studying Germany. And so my first project combined the two. I actually did a comparative study for my dissertation. Not too many people are allowed to do that. Right. But uh, I was allowed to be a little bit adventurous there. And so... I compared street literature in England with um, the same types of stuff in Germany, and I thought it was pretty interesting. I don't think you can understand any one thing unless you compare it to another thing. I don't see how you can. All knowledge is different. Right. Right. Because how can you know what it means if you don't know how it's different from what it might be? (laughs) That's exactly right. Yeah, yeah. So it's too bad that more historians don't do this comparative work. So tell us why you or how you came to write Crime and Culture in Early Modern Germany? Well, it grew partly out of that first project because I was studying women in that first project and I came across some very strange sources about family destruction. Some of them had to do with women doing the crime, but it was a much bigger body of sources that... Um, I had not realized would exist lots of gruesome stories. And so those were kind of in the back of my mind as a body of sources that was strange and that nobody had written about. And then I also was interested in crime because I, I myself was living in Philadelphia and teaching in New Jersey. And my New Jersey students kind of thought that Philadelphia, where I live, is a scary place. And that, that, gee, it was a little surprising that I and my family hadn't been subjected to some violent attack because they had this impression that, you know, the city was full of all these evil people doing bad things all the time. And I also felt that crime was used for political purposes in some pretty powerful ways um, in the 1980s, 1990s. So I conceived this project partly as a way to discover for myself how crime narratives had operated in the past, because I saw them being used to 
pass things like three strikes and you're out laws and um, to you know, influence political campaigns with getting tough on crime. And I also saw people fleeing to the suburbs because they were worried about things that might happen to them in the city, even though I'm not sure the overall risk of living in the suburbs is really lower than living in the the city. So I felt as though people are influenced in ways they weren't necessarily aware of by the kinds of narratives and discourses about crime that we have now. And I knew there were these powerful narratives and images of crime in the early modern period that nobody had studied. So that drew me in to this topic. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, you begin the book by talking about, I think of it, and and this was very evocative at the beginning of the book um, about the difference between what we might call the rational or statistical mind and the sensational or emotive mind. And, you know, if you look at things like, gun violence statistics, just to mention something in the news recently, uh, almost all of, well, first of all, a great proportion of gun violence in the United States is Mm -hmm. self-inflicted. I can't remember the statistics. It's like a third. Uh, And then the the number of people that are actually killed in mass shootings is incredibly low. Your chances of getting killed in a mass shooting are far lower than being hit by lightning. Right. Um, So... You know, but 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 these things are always in the news, and we're guns, and you know, guns with big magazines, and assault weapons, and whatever. Uh, So we're thinking about this stuff all the time. But as I say, you know, you're just much more likely to be, you know, shot by a gun in your house than you are by some madman with a gun at your school. And uh, so this is definitely a phenomenon, and I know it's in my mind a lot too. It occupies a lot of my mental space, and it certainly is very often on the screen in front of me, whether it be a computer or a, a TV. And this has to do with the way the press works. And I think also, as you put in the book, I like the way you use the word sensational because it does cause a sensation. It's sort of like pornography in a way. It's very attractive. You know, it's like, um, you know, try to look away from a car wreck. Exactly. It's right. pretty hard. Right. Um, right. It grabs you and draws you That's in. right. It's pretty hard. And people that sell things on pieces of paper or TV screens know this. <laughs> Don't they ever? So uh, I, want yeah. to be- I want to begin our discussion by talking about a real monumental shift in the way in which, uh, I guess, uh, violence, um, especially violence, was dealt with in Europe uh, between the, uh, the late medieval period and the early modern period. And you talk about that just to set it up. And in the former period, we had uh, accusational justice, that is, somebody accused somebody, and then perhaps the state stepped in. And then later, by the 16th century, when you start your book, or late 15th, uh, things have changed, and the state is an actor. Can you talk a little bit about that shift? Yes, it's a shift from seeing um, violent acts as something that harm just the individual they're done to, or the family of the individual they're done to, to an idea that you ought to have something called public order, or you know the, the common peace that everybody ought to be keeping and not breaking, and that then if you attack somebody else, you're not just damaging that person, you're damaging you know, the whole common political order. And so the, the injured party is not just that private individual. The injured party is your, your community, your state, uh, that then has a responsibility to step in and do something about it and restore the order. Mm-hmm. I mean, in this case, it's based, the basic definition of a crime as something that harms us all. Right. Yeah, whereas the medieval period didn't really have, well, I mean, I don't know if it did or not, but it certainly wasn't well elaborated. 
Yeah, I mean, there was a sense that things were against the law, and therefore you could raise a complaint about them and, and bring them to a court. But there wasn't the same sense of responsibility on, of the central authorities to pursue and punish in the way that they did in the early modern period. All right, so they carve out this set of uh, bad acts, let's say, and then they're taken over by the authorities princes or kings or something like that, and they include things like assault and murder and rape and what we would call serious felonies, right? Yes. Yeah. Interestingly, um, some of the crimes that we think of as the very worst were not as quite as serious in the earlier period. That is, homicide is something that kind of rises to the top of people's concept of what a crime is during this period, whereas, you know, in medieval law, you could compensate the family of the person you killed, potentially. But increasingly in this period, uh, killing someone is is um, becoming to be seen as a worse crime than it had been thought of earlier. Mm-hmm. Right. So in this actually, I was just having a very interesting discussion of this with somebody who knows a little bit about the law. And that I wondered whether it was legal to hit someone in the face if they ask you to. And I don't think it is. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I mean, two consenting adults. I don't think you can consent to that. I think still the person that hits you is still guilty of assault. Guilty assault. That, I don't know. It's just kind of an interesting case. And then where does that put boxing? I don't know. So, yeah. um, so there, there's this class of things which uh, are that can never be victimless crimes. They always have a victim, and the victim is all of us. And this was uh, um, this was sort of codified in the most uh, extensive way in something I don't know how to pronounce. It's either the Carolina or Carolina. Yeah, I've heard it both ways. <laughs> Can you talk a little bit about that? Because it's kind of an, it's a document or a, a set of rules that is incredibly important, but no one's ever heard of it. Yes, this is a code of legal um, wisdom that was issued by um, the imperial government of Charles V. Um, and I should know the exact thing. I think thing. it's 1521. I want to say 1521, so I'll be wrong and you don't have to be wrong. I want to say 1532. Okay, I don't know. Somebody will write us and tell us. Yes. <laughs> it was interesting because it was part of a set of legal reforms that were attempting to impose this new public order in the Holy Roman Empire. But the Holy Roman Empire was a very complicated political body. It didn't have a unified authority to do this. I mean, I guess there's some parallel to the kind of federal quality of the United States, except even more so because Mm -hmm. that, that um, central government didn't have really um, a well-developed justice system going all the way up to the top. So what they had to do was issue this set of codified rules, but they couldn't really impose them. They couldn't really say you have to follow this written law everywhere they could just say that this is the best imperial authority for what the law ought to be as long as it's okay with the local territorial authorities wherever you happen to be. And there are hundreds of these local authorities in the Holy Roman Empire. Mm-hmm. But, but I guess one sort of mild thing to say about it, it's, it's generally what the right-thinking people of the day thought justice should be. Yes, yes. Yeah. And the, pe- all the people who had been to law school and the people who we're trying to uh, rationalize and um, reform the legal system. Yeah, and rationalization, in the generic sense, not the Weberian sense, is a um, 
an important part of your book because you do have people who are what we would call activists who are pushing this kind of thing. Yes, yes. They want the system to be more rational, not arbitrary, they, you know, not based on just kind of local variation or just on whim or just on people's gut feeling of what's right. They want it to be based on legal standards that are verifiable and written and you know, can be passed by the legal authorities and found to be correct. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I see. A lot less eye for an eye and a little bit more, I don't know, law, as we would call it, yeah, <laughs> non-retributive yeah. law. Yes. Well, a lot of the people who were staffing the courts had not been to law school. They were people who were um, noble or wealthy or otherwise um, prominent and respected, but they didn't have the kind of expertise that the reformers wished they could have. Mm -hmm. So they were putting out a set of rules for them to try to get them to behave more. Mm -hmm. Let's talk a little bit bit about those authorities. I, I, um, so, so when, when a crime, say murder or something like that, was committed, how was the process started? Well, uh, somebody would notice it yeah. <laughs> and, and call in the authorities. They, they, um, the, the standard practice by the early modern period, kind of as it is now, at least in the accounts that are, are written, is you see that someone's murdered and you call, you call the authorities. You go notify the government and they... Right. But none of these places had sort of cops on the beat. They didn't really have no. police. No. Yeah. So did you go to the magistrate and say, right. I just found Johan in the road with, yes. a, with a knife in his neck? That's right. Right. And then they would conduct an investigation and round people up. That's right. Yeah, right. Um, right. You couldn't call the police, but you would call the, you know, the town magistrate. The- right. And here's where things really get different from the medieval period when the magistrate and his... Uh, sort of helpers go and uh, look for people. They round people up and start to question them. Yes. They got very involved in actual investigation. Um, They would even try to trace people over the border into the next territory. And they were very proud if they were able to do this. You know, they would write letters to the neighboring authorities with descriptions of people that they wanted to have tracked down. Mm -hmm. And, Usually they weren't too lucky in this because there were so many borders, but, <laughs> but when, they, when they found somebody, they crowed about it because it was a real coup to, to track people over. Right. And here we have another real a principal difference between, um, I guess, early modern and modern law. One of their principal techniques in trying to find out who'd done what was to torture them. Well, yes. Um, you weren't supposed to do that unless you were really pretty sure that this person was guilty. Um, and, and this is uh, an interesting feature of this new rational, uh, I guess, quote unquote, rational justice system. There were very, very precise rules that you had to follow in order to get a legal conviction. It wasn't enough just to kind of be sure that you had the guilty party, you had to meet um, these very specific evidentiary standards, right. which involved having two eyewitnesses or um, other kinds of proofs that were quantified as quarter proofs or half proofs right. or, or three quarter proofs. But if you didn't have the eyewitnesses to be really sure, to really clinch the deal and get them convicted, you had to have a confession from the guilty party. And that was where the issue of torture came in, because if you knew they were guilty, but they wouldn't confess, um, 
torture was the way to elicit the truth, which, of course, is a big factor in witch trials, but also in regular criminal trials if you thought somebody had done the murder and they wouldn't confess that they had done it. Mm -hmm. How is this different from an ordeal? Well, it has some elements of that in that uh, people kind of thought that if you were innocent, God would somehow strengthen you and enable you to withstand the torture. Um, so, yeah, it was a, a way of trying to reveal the truth. It got a little complicated because even though God was supposed to strengthen you to help you through the torture if you were innocent, um, if the devil got involved, he might strengthen you to help you withstand the torture if you were guilty. And so it raised some... And people pointed this out. They, they wondered about the utility of this. Yes. Yeah, for obvious yes. reasons, right? Yes. And so there were very strict rules about, you know, again, about which level of torture you could use depending on how, how pretty sure you were, you know, whether you had three-quarter proof or, or, you know, some lesser level of proof. Um, that would enable you to go forward. Mm-hmm. And how do they generally torture people? Well, the most common was the strapado, which is a um, uh, involves drawing people up with their hands bound behind their back by a rope right. uh, um, with kind of a pulley device and then uh, kind of dropping them part way, mm-hmm. which dislocates the shoulders and is horrible. Um and they would sometimes attach weights, uh, you know, really um, pretty nasty. Although that um, often when they're recounting the confessions of people, they don't necessarily specify which type of torture that particular person mm-hmm. was undergoing. So you don't always know what's used in a particular case. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then once uh, somebody is uh, convicted, do they, do they have the right to appeal? Sort of, but not really. Um, you know, there were never happened in any of the cases that I looked at. Yeah, I mean, I don't know of any system of appellate courses. I mean, I know in the Russian case they could appeal for mercy. Oh yes, well, of course they yeah, did that. That was pretty much all they could do. Yes, yeah. and uh, you know, it would often it, if they were a, a sort of sympathetic person or they had noble friends, right. they could get mercy, which would mean instead of being killed in some really gruesome way, you would be beheaded. Mm-hmm. Um, but for the kinds of killing that I'm looking at, which are ones that would be highly publicized in in uh, pamphlets and broadsides, these were considered the worst murder. So those folks never got the kind of simple, or almost never got the simple, easy beheading death. It, there was always a death with... Um, torments attached to it, which are different from legal torture. Um, the torments were intended to provide extra punishment and illustrate how terrible the crime was that they had committed. Mm-hmm. I won't ask you what those were. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty disgusting. Um, I'm glad that you mentioned um, Christianity. How did people understand the causes of criminality in this period? And that changes as well. Well, the devil, of course, is a big player in this. And um, one of the messages that gets sent to people in accounts of crime from this period is they're told they should be worried about crime and they should pay attention. Um, But it's not so much as in our day when we're told we should um, 
you know, lock the doors or uh, pack a gun or whatever people are telling <laughs> us we should do. Um, they were told you need to be vigilant against the devil because the devil gets into your mind and is going to tempt you, it, it could tempt you into doing something horrible. Because one of the things that most fascinated people about um, the kinds of horrible crimes that they wrote about was that these people who were committing them were mostly not likely suspect kind of people. It was, you know, people who had settled family lives who were you know, integrated into their communities. And then all of a sudden they fly into a wild rage and kill people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So these, these are the, these devil, are, the devil could get you and you have to be worried about that. Right. These were the scary cases for them because it's understandable when a highwayman sort of sticks somebody up or kills them for money. That, that, that makes sense. But, you know, and this is true in our day as well when, you know, some, uh, Somebody who just, you know, is your next door neighbor, we talk about it in this way, you know, ends up, you know, torturing or murdering his family or her family. This really draws our attention. Right. Because right. it universalizes it, like that can happen to us. So the, were there a lot of these cases? I mean, or or do we have this other, this instance of this, this sort of sensational mind again, where they just like were picked up immediately by the press? And we should also probably talk a little bit about the origins of what we call the press. Yes. Yeah, well, definitely the sensational retelling of the crime kind of magnifies them. So there are multiple retellings of similar kinds of crimes in the pamphlet literature. But if you go to look at an individual locality and what kinds of crimes happened there, you probably wouldn't find one of those crimes. Mm -hmm. Um, For instance, Nuremberg, which is one of the best documented places with archival sources from this period and and the diary of the executioner is preserved from this period and so um, if there had been one of these multiple murders in Nuremberg we would know about it but a pretty big place pretty prominent place but um, one did not happen there um, so yeah it gets magnified in people's minds by the you know the press Right. And so now we have a press. I mean, we should say that, uh, you know, pr- prior to this point, we had manuscripts and people can they can copy manuscripts pretty darn fast, faster than we would think. Um, but once we have the printing press, things change. Yes. And, you know, printing is still relatively new, um, you know, for a few decades old at the point when my study starts around 1500, 1510 is, is when I saw the very first crime accounts of the type that I've been studying, but um, actually, I do know of an earlier one, but well, there's always an earlier one. There's always I can tell you from experience exact, that if exact. you say it's the earliest, yes. Yes. you're sunk. Yes, <laughs> right, right. <laughs> yeah, so let's talk a little bit about this literature. I told you in the uh, pre-interview, uh, they're called Flugschriften, uh, which are either pamphlets, I guess, or I don't know what to call them. Yes, pamphlets. Uh, yeah, pamphlets, booklets. Yeah, I, stu- I studied them a little bit in, in some of my work. Can you tell us a little bit about them and how they were produced and who produced them and why they were produced and so on and so forth? Right. Well, they are among the cheapest printed products, and they're produced by printers for profit. Um, they generally would be four to six leaves of printing, sometimes with a picture, sometimes not. A lot of them were um, about various sorts of news, not all of them about crime. 
um, or some of them about other topics of the day. But um, they were quickly picked up as a way of spreading crime news. And um, they would often have a set of rhymes that you were supposed to sing, um, which is uh, maybe surprising to people who are used to our newspapers, that you would go singing about the latest murder. Mm-hmm. Well, songs are sticky. I think that's what we would that's say. Right. If, in terms yeah, of modern it, advertising culture, they're sticky. Of course. That's right. That's right. And you'd be able to remember them yeah. and uh, tell it again. Um, so the, the, the Flugschrift pamphlet is one form in which crime news was spread, and the other is the broadside, which is kind of like a poster with often verses along with a picture. Mm-hmm. And these pictures are pretty fantastic. I think people should pick up the book just to look at the pictures because <laughs> they are pr- pretty amazing. Can you talk about how they were produced and commissioned and so on and so forth? Do you know? I don't really know a lot about how they were commissioned or produced. Yes. Well, there were some cases in which actually the government uh, paid the paid a an artist to portray the crime scene, and that could sometimes find its way into print. But I, I think in most cases, again, it was to for the profit of the printer, or um, uh, there was a kind of business called uh, Form Schneider, which is a cutter of woodcut blocks. Those folks were making a living by making the pictures. Um, and they were often very careful about getting the details of the crime scene right, exactly what weapon was used and exactly who was there and you know various different bits of the scene. There's sometimes a, a kind of strip of um, you know different stages of the crime mm-hmm. that would be yeah. uh, portrayed. Yeah. So uh, just to give people an idea, there are really a lot of these things. Yes. Um, I, um, I've looked at uh, a couple hundred. Um, the, clearly the survival is incomplete. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's no good way to estimate how many would have existed at the time. But clearly what we have left is only... Uh, the tip of the iceberg of how many were actually printed and distributed. Mm-hmm. And then they were pirated and copied and yes. everything that you would expect. So they, they were in wide circulation. Yes. Yeah, that's right. And they're called, I don't understand, so they're called ephemera. That's what bibliographers call them, ephemera. I don't know why, but they do. Uh, so they expected so, people to throw them away. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, I guess. So they were printed on very nice paper by our standards. They, they, they were, <laughs> and they sometimes got bound into... Um, you know, people, they didn't have a binding themselves. These are just uh, flimsy paper. But people would sometimes bind them into a book with other pamphlets mm-hmm. together. Mm-hmm. Now, people have done uh, analyses of the topics of these things. And, uh, and quite a few of them are about crime, aren't they? Yes. Mm-hmm. Oh, 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 and actually, when I said 200, I'm just talking about the crime just ones. Just the crime so ones, that's right. Thousands yeah. and thousands of, of yeah. non-crime ones. Exactly. But crime was a, was a, was a popular thing on the it bleeds, it leads logic. Yes. Mm-hmm. And especially these sensational ones. Can you tell us a little bit about some of these sensational cases? Because they are, uh, and I don't say this just to be titillating, they are pretty sensational. And some of them are strikingly, you know, if you think people murdering their family members was invented yesterday, you're wrong. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. Family destruction was a, a really common recurring theme um, in the kinds of accounts that got published. And they were... 
they were kind of structured in a way to really heighten the sensational aspects of them. And this is something that, that I think is striking, one of the most striking things about them. Um, because you would think that if somebody went and slaughtered their whole family, that that would be kind of shocking enough. Um, but they added lots of techniques of conveying the story that would make you feel even kind of worse about the fact that people had killed their whole family. Um, and that starts with, some, you know, the, the bloody pictures that they, um, you know, with lots of detail about the actual harm done to the bodies and so on. But um, they also were very interested in the killing of children and would recount um, pleas from the murdered children saying, please don't kill me in, in very touching and affecting language that clearly the authors were making up. It's mm-hmm. not that they had heard the, you know, that anybody had witnessed these pleas being made, but part of the kind of convention that came up that developed about how you would talk about the murder of really helpless victims like children is you would put these words in their mouths um, with, you know, words of affection toward their parents saying, Oh, don't you love me? Or my dearest mother, don't kill me. Those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. I, I was very interested in these because, and this will ask you to speculate a little bit. Uh, today we have the notion that it is indecent uh, to show the level of graphic violence that these woodcuts or copper cuts show. That's right. So uh, kind of borderline obscene. Yeah. 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 Apparently they did not. What did they think about them? Do we know? Well, I think that they thought that, uh, that fully recognizing the horror would make you more aware of the power of the devil and of how, um, you know, severely gruesome it would be. Now, of course, this also was an age when, um, you know, kind of macabre and gruesome artwork was not just in these crime accounts, but one can find it elsewhere Hmm. also. Well, well, one question I had, and I don't know about the German case, and maybe you mentioned it in the book and I missed it. I know that in the case in England that you had to get things when you printed them past the Stationers Guild, and this was controlled by the court. Uh, so was there any similar sort of mechanism to control what was printed in uh, these German principalities? Oh, yes. Well, there was always local censorship. Yeah. The, you, know, the, you had to get government, or, or I should say you were supposed to get government permission, and you'd get into trouble if you published without government permission. That isn't to say that people didn't do that, but the safer way was always to get the authorities to approve what you were going to print. And it, it certainly... Um, in some cases, it's very clear that the governments were very happy to have these things published, especially in those cases where they'd been able to chase somebody across territorial lines and bring back the culprit and have them executed and so they could show what zealous and wonderful government authorities they were. Um, there are some that even kind of explicitly uh, sing the praises of the authorities for how wonderful they were and how everyone should now be ultra loyal to them because they have been able to catch this culprit and punish the um, the evil murderer. Mm-hmm. And that was thought to be really important, not, not so much because they thought that murderer would go and kill somebody else, although they might have been concerned about that, but there was a real feeling that uh, 
you know, God would be unhappy if you did not, you know, uphold true standards of justice and, and therefore they were, they're protecting the whole community and, and gaining divine favor and kind of acting in God's stead by uh, doing this punishment of the criminal. Mm-hmm. And again, not to be sensational or anything, but can you describe a couple of these, these family murders? I mean, do you, I don't know if you're prepared to do that, but. Well, there was, there was one that um, uh, kind of created a huge outpouring of media attention um, in 1585. And that was um, a man named Blasi Endres who killed his whole family, which included children, wife, and servants. Um, And in that case, it was especially noteworthy to people because he was a very prominent member of his community in the town of Wangen. And he had been mayor. He had been a judge. He was uh, owner of a prosperous inn and had been a factor for several um, wealthy merchants. He was, you know, very well connected and um, important person. Um, and uh, so it was, uh, you know, quite a sensational crime. And um, that one actually raised a lot of different theories about what had led him into this violent rampage. Um, certainly everybody agreed that the devil was involved. Some of the accounts um, also sort of thought that his wife had caused some of this problem. He was having some money troubles, even though he was quite wealthy, he found some discrepancy in his books or something. And um, the accounts about the role of his wife ranged from either she sort of said something to him about it in a way that got him irritated, or one of them even claims that she kind of stole the money. Um, so, uh, and, and that clearly was not, that, you know, that was uh, kind of an imagined version of it with lots of other fanciful elements that didn't really happen, but it um, it is a story that got retold in various different ways with different agendas on the part of the people who were mm-hmm. in the story out. It became kind of a touchstone. So let, let me ask you this about, about cases like that one. Um, do we see the evolution of something that's a little bit like forensic psychology here? I mean, we mentioned the devil. The devil made him do it. Okay, that's quite simple. Uh, but is there any attempt to get at the inner life of these people? That does come out in some of these cases, um, and there's not a lot of it um, until you begin to get into the 17th century, and then there begins to be a bit more. But, um, yeah, you, uh, there is some attempt at uh, finding an inner dialogue even sometimes about should they do the crime, should they not. Um, and, um, I, um, I think one can identify a shift over time from thinking that kind of anybody is vulnerable to the devil's temptation toward 
starting to think that the criminal is a special kind of person and that understanding the character of the criminal rather than understanding the nature of the devil is what will help you draw the line between somebody who is going to uh, turn to this kind of criminal activity and somebody who is not. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was, I was wondering about that because, you know, in, I'll just take a simple example, in Shakespeare's plays, which are roughly contemporaneous, you do find inner dialogue of, of people that are, are criminals. You, you do find oh, like them talking to themselves. Do we have anything like that in the early modern German context? Um, not nearly as much as there was in contemporary England. There is some, but it's, it's less. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, I see. So what, what is, you know, and again, this is curious to me because I know that the Germans had an incredibly extensive university system, probably the best in the world at the time. Um, did people at universities think about these kinds of things? I know that, you know, Germans invented statistics, a lot of different things. And, um, was there anybody thinking about reasons for crime at German universities? About criminology? Yeah, I mean, I don't. that's an honest question. I don't know. I, I, yeah. you know. I actually don't know that either. Yeah, I really don't know. Some, <laughs> one of our listeners out there, please uh, tell us know, if there's, there's anyone thinking about it. There were, there were people who were thinking about law and about justice. Yeah, as I say, I, I really don't know the answer to this. So let's talk a little bit about one of the things that plays a large role in your, in your book is the history of emotion and the way people felt about these things. Can you talk a little bit about uh, the sort of play of emotion versus rationality in this era in, in the reading of the pamphlets and also in the commission of the crimes and these kinds of things? Yeah, well, one of the things that I think is going on in this sensational appeal and, and the kind of attempt to really stir up people's emotions and really get them to experience the crimes vicariously was, it was not not just about making money and selling the pamphlets, even though that certainly was going on. But part of what um, a lot of the authors and sellers of these were asking people to do was what they called take it to heart. Um, you'd, you'd read about the crime, yes, and you'd be shocked by the crime, yes, and hopefully you'd buy the pamphlet, yes. But also they said um, you should take it to heart. And um, there were, just as uh, a little more background to this, a lot of the people who were writing these accounts were quite um, serious and conscientious people. There were a lot of clerics involved, particularly Protestant clergy, and they thought that they had a, a serious and valuable religious message to send. And uh, you know, it was in the interest of the authorities to send these kinds of messages too, which were saying to people, okay, this is a, horrible thing that has happened, we all, the whole community, should feel drawn together in horror and, um, and uh, you know, condemnation of this terrible thing that was done. What, what can draw us together is we agree that, that we need to have this strong, powerful authority to punish this because that's what God would want, and we all, all also need to, to take it into our own hearts and turn toward repentance and a, a more pious outlook. Um, so I feel as though the, these works are attempting to create a kind of public consciousness out there that will, will get people to agree to certain things, uh, to, um, you know, the uh, increasing power of the government to punish crimes, um, to, you know, the religious views of the people that are putting these works forward 
as well. So um, there's, a, there's a propaganda element to it, but also I think a kind of building of public opinion, sense of common community among people in response to these horrific acts. So these 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 flugschrift and these, these descriptions, just the ones of, of sort of horrendous murders and family murders, they have a kind of a life in the 17th and 18th century as well. Can you talk a little bit about the way people use them? I mean, I'm, you know, what, what comes to mind is the way people uh, sample songs now, you know, where they, they take some of this material and they reuse it. I mean, you mentioned even that Goethe has, he, he, he ends up writing about infanticide. So how, how do they, what is their later kind of cultural resonance? Things become kind of increasingly stylized as you get into the 18th century with the idea of what the criminal ought to be feeling and um, there's kind of an attempt to impersonate them and to uh, to create a, um, a monologue that's supposed to be coming from the criminal telling about how they have repented of their crime and um, you know again to you know to, to train people in this kind of uh, Correct emotional response. The the correct emotional response of the criminal is they should feel very guilty and they should be grateful to the authorities who are about to punish them because that punishment is going to save their soul or is going to you know help them recognize the kind of repentance they need in order to save their soul. And um, these these things become a kind of you know regular convention mm-hmm. kind of a trope or just an element yeah, of, yeah. Uh, and, and, and so by the time you get into the 18th century and start to read these they all sound kind of the same right. uh, you know the, the criminals are all saying the same thing uh, on in their last supposed last words but you know that it's not really the criminal's last words because the um the poet author actually signs Mm-hmm. I mean, I remember reading, actually, this was an undergraduate many, actually, a couple of decades ago. I read this thing and wrote a paper about it called the Newgate Calendar. Oh, yes. Yeah. And, and it was basically a collection of these pamphlets. Uh, it was pu- first published in the 18th century, I think. Maybe, it might have been the 17th century, but it was republished later. Uh, and, you know, for all the world, it, it looked a little bit like they were kind of, I read them a little bit like horror stories. Mm-hmm. Um, but in a way, they were mm, kind of morality plays. But there was much titillating in them. I mean, they were kind of pornographic. Right. Yeah, and there was in the ones I read, there was very little interiority. You know, one always thinks of like Dostoevsky and people wringing okay, their hands yeah. about committing crimes, but we read little of that. Right. Right. Do we see anything in the 18th century like um, what we might think of as a? I mean, you know, we talk about the 18th century as the birth of the novel. I mean, are there crime novels? Are there? I'm sure one of our listeners will say, "Oh yeah, there's this," but <laughs> I can't think of any. I, you know, I mean. Yes. Um, yeah. Well, of course, there are those romantics who start to write about crime. They're very, you know. By, by the 18th century, they're very, very yep. interested in that. Robbers and um, it, it was kind of connected with the gothic horror mm-hmm. um, vogue in the in the 18th century, and um, a lot of those authors got very interested in infanticide, which um, you know, put them into this idea of recapturing the interiority of that poor, um, desperate young mother who might kill her children. That is something that comes in in the 18th century that's really kind of foreign to the earlier concept of, of 
what you cared about in crime. Yeah, I mean, I know, you know, again, my knowledge of 18th century literature is poor, and what of it I know is Russian and English. And in the English case, there are there are novels, you know, of people doing bad things, but they're more like uh, sort of body things, something like Tom Jones or Tristram Shandy or this kind of thing. They're, they aren't going out and murdering people. At least I don't recall that they are, I, you know. Yes. Um, yeah, well, they're definitely, I did not study the 18th century in any in any uh, great detail, because I really got yeah. the 17th. Um, but, there, you know, there certainly are, um, you know, book-length studies of, not, well, studies, maybe not the right word, but book-length accounts of the life of certain, certain robbers. Yeah, I'm sure there are. Um, yeah. By the time you get into the 18th century. Yeah, I'm sure there are. I wish I knew more about them. I don't know, because I'm always looking, you know, historians are always looking for the origins of this or that. And, um, you know, they say Dostoevsky read newspaper accounts and sort of thought it up. I'm not quite sure that's true. And other people say, you know, it was Edgar Allan Poe who sort of invented this genre. I, I don't really know where you kind of go into the mind of somebody that's doing something bad and, uh, and, and, and watch them do it, which again has this kind of voyeuristic element. And also it's a cautionary tale as well. So it'd be right. very interesting to find out how they, you know, and you know, it, you can go look at the New York post and the, for, you know, headless body and topless bar. It's still, you know, it's, it's not, it's not that different from what goes on today. Right, right. Yeah, so anyway. Well, uh, Joey, we've taken up a lot of your time, and I really, really appreciate it. It's a fascinating book, Crime and Culture in Early Modern Germany. Um, let me close the interview by asking our traditional final question on new books in history, and that is, what are you working on now? What's your current project? Well, I felt as though I had had enough of people slashing up their families <laughs> after writing this book. Yeah. So I'm uh, starting a project on laughter. (laughs) (laughs) He laughs. Yes, yes. I'm interested in uses of laughter in um, kind of interpersonal relationships and especially across gender. And um, in a way, I'm approaching it differently from the crime book because in the crime book, I was not so interested in whether these crimes, on exactly what crimes happened and what kinds of things people did. I was more interested in the discourse and how people talked about it because I felt that was a powerful element that had not been analyzed. Um, when, you, when it comes to humor and laughter, I feel as though we know a lot about what people said about it, comedy and jokes and uh, joke books and lots of literature about it um what it's harder to get at is is kind of more everyday laughter so i'm i'm uh, my task for this is to find some sources i've been using some church court records and some other things like that but uh i'm not quite sure where that project will go but well, it won't have people slashing up there yeah it sounds, it sounds much more enjoyable than this one so I want, I want to wish you luck on that and i want to thank everybody for listening today uh and you have been listening to New Books in History, which is part of the New Books Network. Uh, I'm Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in History. And I hope everybody has a great week. And I want to say, Joy, thanks for, again for being on the show. Thanks, Marshall. Okay, bye-bye. <laughs>